Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in History. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. Each week, we introduce a new book in history we find interesting and interview the author. This week's interview is with David Silvey, author of A War of Frontier and Empire, The Philippine-American War, 1899-1902. The Spanish-American War was not only the beginning of a new imperial period for the United States, it was also the point at which the Filipino people first conceptualized of themselves as a nation where Americans sought to conquer, control, and pacify their newly purchased possessions. A nascent nationalist movement sought to create some sense of unity from the hundreds of different tribes, clans, and ethnic groups living in the archipelago. As David Silby creates a new narrative of this highly controversial, yet little understood period in American history, he also unveils a series of new interpretations of the war's conduct, its haphazard administration, over thousands of miles, and the new relationships growing between Filipinos and Americans, even amidst war. In the end, the Filipino-American War certainly was a strange moment in the history of the U.S. Army and American foreign policy. That is to say, it was a counterinsurgency that worked, despite the pressures of racial intolerance and mutual misperceptions on the part of its participants. David Silby's gifts as a writer, combined with his skill as a historian, create a short yet vital account of this generally forgotten period that is extremely relevant today. I enjoyed this book, and I recommend it highly. Hello, David. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. Good Good. to hear from you. Hello, everybody. We're talking today with David Silby about his book, A War of Frontier and Empire, The Philippine-American War, 1899-1902. This is Bob Wintermute, your host. I've read his book, and I do recommend it. Since the invasion of Iraq in 2003, there has been a renewed interest in past counterinsurgencies and imperial conflicts, including the Philippine-American War. Following on the heels of the Spanish-American War, the Philippine-American War, or Philippine Insurrection as it has been called, pitted American regulars and volunteers against a collection of Philippine nationalists, local warlords, and tribal communities in an often bitter struggle for three years. In the end, American forces succeeded in imposing their will on the Philippine archipelago through a combination of force, guile, diplomacy, and public works projects. David chronicles this often overlooked conflict, which he describes as alternatively being a revolution, an insurrection, and a conventional war, and places it in the context not only of an American imperial conflict, but also as marking the birth of Filipino nationalism. A War of Frontier and Empire is an important book that has no small relevance today for readers. David, take a few moments. Can you tell us about yourself and what drew you to the project? 
Um, I'm a military historian. Uh, I did my Ph.D. at uh, Duke University. Um, and the, the genesis of the project uh, really came about in 2003-2004 um, when the United States had, had successfully uh, uh, conquered Iraq in a conventional military campaign, but it was pretty clear that the war uh, wasn't over. Um, and uh, the comparisons to Vietnam, especially in 2004, began to grow pretty rapidly. Uh, I I got interested um, in thinking about how America deals with insurgencies because it struck me at the time that Vietnam aside, the U.S. has actually been pretty good at fighting counterinsurgencies, especially in the 19th century. Uh, the classic example of that, of course, is the uh, Indian Wars uh, of the late mm-hmm. part of the 19th century. But the Philippine War, um, which hadn't really been dealt with uh, all that effectively uh, by historians, uh, seemed to me to be another classic example uh, of the U.S. fighting and winning a uh, counterinsurgency in relatively quick time. Um, you know, we've today we've been in Iraq or Afghanistan for nearly, uh, uh, and in one case, more than a decade, um, and. Uh, Still, resolution, uh, the resolution of both those wars is somewhat elusive. Uh, the Philippine War, by contrast, took only three years uh, and ended up with a pretty clear-cut American victory. Uh, and I wanted to sort of explore that and try to figure out why the U.S. was so much better at counterinsurgencies in the 19th century than we seem to be then, than we seem to be now. Right, right. You know, you know that even at the moment when the, the insurrection or the war was occurring, there's no real consensus among Filipinos or Americans as to what exactly the Philippine-American War was about. And this ambiguity has lingered among historians ever since. Can you say a few words about that? Sure. The It, it is fascinating. Um, uh, on the American side, um, the, the war was sort of seen in two different ways uh, when it uh, was when it was being waged um, by Americans back home uh, and one was uh, a uh, uh, for good or ill uh, uh, the first great American imperial effort um, where America went out to the globe and began to acquire the kind of empire that all great powers uh, had. Um, and there were people in favor of that, like Teddy Roosevelt, and there were people who opposed that. Um, it was also viewed um, as a sort of civilizing moment that the United States was going to bring the virtues of Christianity and um, democracy and capitalism to the benighted um, Filipinos um, and uh, help raise them up uh, out of the darkness. Uh, and, of course, the most famous example of that sort of sense is um, Rudyard Kipling's poem, The White Man's Burden, um, which talks about, um, uh, you know, ruling over people who are half devil and half child um, and bringing them up to uh, the standards of Western civilization. Um, and finally, there's, there's also, in a strange sense, there's also this perception of the Philippines as... Uh, a new frontier. Um, the, you know, the Western uh, frontier had had been 
in essence, closed down in the 1890s. That's the famous speech by Frederick Jackson Turner, of course. Exactly right, exactly right. Um, And so Americans sort of perceived the Pacific and the Philippines as an extension of um, uh, of this frontier, the Wild West over the ocean, perhaps. Um, to the point that a lot of the American soldiers referred to uh, Filipinos uh, using Indian slang. Um, Filipino mm-hmm. women were squaws, insurgents were bravo, uh, were braves, um, and so on. Um, the Filipino side is, is in many ways even more fascinating. The Filipinos didn't think of themselves as Filipinos. Um, they thought of themselves as members of uh, whatever tribe... Um, on whatever island they uh, uh, inhabited, uh, and there was no greater sense of them as as an island nation, um, uh, a single island nation loyal uh, to one another. Uh, and so this war is sort of perceived in many ways as being um, uh, many against one, uh, the one mm-hmm. being the United States uh, and the many being the various uh, Filipino tribes. Um, the Filipino leader, Emilio Aguinaldo, had great troubles with that because it was very hard to to force people uh, or order people to do things um, mm-hmm. and have them obey. And a lot of his um, uh, officers uh, were quite willing to strike a separate deal with the United States if they thought it was to their and their tribe's uh, advantage. Um, Making it worse was that uh, Aguinaldo was a Tagalog, um, the largest tribe on, on Luzon, and um, that tribe was viewed with great suspicion by a lot of other uh, groups. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a sort of fascinating and very fractured uh, perception of the war on the Filipino side. That, that, that was very interesting. I know when reading, yeah, we, we talk about American support for the war. I mean, clearly it was not a completely popular war at home, um, there was resistance to the ideas of empire. Do you talk about them at yeah, all? Yeah, there was, uh, there, was a, there was a great deal of resistance to it. And it's, um, there, were, there were a lot of people who were very much in favor of the idea of, a, of an American empire. But there were a lot of people who opposed this idea of imperialism and sort of hearkened back to... Um, uh, John Winthrop's idea of a city upon a hill, that America's role in the world is not to go out and conquer it, it's to um, serve as a shining example to the rest uh, of the globe. And that by doing this, we were um, uh, tarnishing ourselves um, in that. Allied to that, bizarrely, there was a fair amount of resistance from Southerners mm-hmm. uh, who weren't interested in acquiring a colony filled with um, a non-white um, inhabitants um, and making them part of the United States. And so there's this very odd sort of alliance between these anti-imperialists um, who are centered in the Northeast mm-hmm. um, and Southern, um, uh, you know, Jim Crow uh, politicians who are trying not to uh, acquire more of what they thought of as decadent um, and inferior races. Mm-hmm. Turning back to the, the military campaigns associated with the war and, and the Spanish-American War before, how do you contextualize the American successes at Manila Bay 
and the later occupation of the city itself, and how that was viewed by the, the other great powers. I mean, you mentioned this is America's arrival on the imperial stage. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating um, uh, it's a fascinating moment because the this really is the United States' first great um, uh, global war in that sense, and we shouldn't forget how just how weak the United States had been for most of the, the late 19th century, at least in terms of global military power. Um, the army and navy had been cut back dramatically after the end of the Civil War badly enough that in a naval confrontation with Chile in 1891, the American president, to his shock, was told that the Navy could not guarantee that the Chilean Navy wouldn't be able to shell the east coast of the United <laughs> States, um, and we had to back down. Um, so there had been a decade of building up to, of, of building the military up, but when the war with Spain starts in 1898, um, there is uh, a perception in... Uh, Europe and elsewhere that the U.S. has bitten off more than it can chew. Mm-hmm. Um, that even though Spain is a is a decaying and dwindling empire, it's still too much for the um, the U.S. to handle. It becomes an enormous shock then to the rest of the world when the U.S. not only handles Spain but handles Spain with breathtaking ease. Um, you know, in many ways, that war resembled nothing more than the first Gulf War of the 1990s. <laughs> you know, the American Army lost more men in training exercises um, uh, than it did fighting the Spanish. Uh, and if it hadn't been for disease in Florida and Cuba, we would have won that war without um, much uh, in the way of resistance. The bizarre... One bizarre element of this is nobody had intended the Philippines to be part of this, with one exception. Um, The Philippines were the last great Spanish colony in the Pacific, Uh had sort of been stagnating for centuries, um, and had been mostly ruled by the Roman Catholic uh, Church, uh, the Spanish uh, Roman Catholic Church. Um, And... Uh, President McKinley certainly had not thought about um, uh, taking them. But the exception to this was a a gentleman who is familiar from other contexts, and that is Theodore Roosevelt, Mm. um, who was Assistant Secretary of the Navy at this time, who was very much an ardent imperialist who who saw the United States in a very social Darwinian way that, that... it is, the, it is the destiny of the white races to fight and win and prove themselves superior. Um, and starting that would be um, by taking the Philippines away from the Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, he, had been, uh, he had maneuvered an old friend of his by the name of George Dewey into uh, uh, command of the uh, Asiatic fleet uh, out in the Pacific. Um, and he took the opportunity of a day when the old and somewhat worn-out Secretary of the Navy, John Long, was out sick, um, to send a telegram to Dewey um, in 1898 saying, when the war with Spain starts, you'll sail to the Philippines and attack the Spanish fleet there. Um, and when completely outside of his authority, he had no power to do what he did, that he did right. there. Um, when Long gets back in the next day and discovered what Roosevelt has done, he sort of tut-tuts but doesn't countermand the telegram, which <laughs> <laughs> was way out of his authority as well. Um, 
So the the war with Spain starts, and Dewey sails off from Hong Kong to to Manila Bay to go after the Spanish fleet. Dewey's, mm-hmm. Dewey's a great character because he had served under David Farragut in the Civil War, and in Forever After wanted his own damn the torpedoes full speed ahead moment. <laughs> and this was it. Right. They just they found the Spanish fleet in Manila Bay and um, uh, throwing aside worries about possible mines or artillery on the shore, uh, Dewey charges in to Manila Bay and attacks the Spanish fleet and sinks it um, uh, without a, essentially without a scratch to the Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, the Spanish admiral had a good sense of what was going to happen um, given the fact that his ships were, were terribly obsolete. He'd actually positioned them in the shallowest part of the bay so that when they sank, his men would have a chance to swim ashore. Hmm. Um, and suddenly, so Dewey, Dewey wipes this antiquated Spanish fleet out and sends a message home to McKinley um, uh, that says, uh, a telegram home to McKinley that says, not one Spanish flag flies in Manila hmm. Bay. <laughs> um, and McKinley sort of says, I, I don't even know where the Philippines is on a map. <laughs> That's amazing, because that really brings up the other point that you raise so well, is that it's just a complete disconnect between policymakers in Washington and commanders in the Philippines. I mean, not only Dewey, but then later when the army lands in right. Manila, I mean, the, the two... Two branches just seem to be completely disassociated from each other. Right. And, and you have generals pursuing policy on their own. Right. Exactly right. Exactly right. And do, I mean, you know, the, the fascinating thing is that, uh, is, is Dewey is, uh, not, did not have a small ego. Um, and, and the American. Clearly not. <laughs> oh, yes. And the American, uh, army commanders, uh, did not, uh, did not either. Um, especially later on, uh, Arthur MacArthur. But mm-hmm. so, by the time they, um, by the time the soldiers get out there, um, uh, it's not clear what what they're going to do because McKinley hasn't made up his mind. Mm-hmm. There's a Spanish army that's still stuck in Manila City with no way home. Dewey is sitting in Manila Bay, lord of all he surveys. Um, although there are ships from the other great imperial powers sort of sailing around, um, eyeing the Americans uh, quite closely. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the process by which the U.S. sort of comes to acquire it is, is sort of this, as you said, sort of this slow creep of generals on the ground um, trying to, uh, the slow creep of generals on the ground doing a little bit more and a little bit more without much guidance from home and mm-hmm. end up eventually putting McKinley into quite a, um, uh, quite a spot. Uh, you know, add, add into all of this is that among other things that Dewey brought with him from Hong Kong where he sailed was uh, a gentleman by the name of Emilio Aguinaldo mm-hmm. who had, had been leading an insurrection against the Spanish in the mid-1890s. Um, and then it negotiated a, uh, a truce uh, with the Spanish um, in which he agreed to leave the islands in return for a rather large cash settlement 
Um, and uh, Dewey met with him, uh, brought him back, and dropped him off uh, north of Manila to start the insurrection again. Right. So suddenly, it's not just Dewey and the American soldiers who are there. There's an, there's an army of native Filipinos, who, led by Aguinaldo, who see this as an opportunity to win their independence. And they're not entirely sure who to trust. They certainly don't trust the Spanish. They're not sure whether they should trust the Americans or not. And mm-hmm. they are really not sure whether they should even trust each other. Right. Right. I mean, well, how do the Americans perceive the Filipinos when they arrive? I mean, we mentioned, of course, you mentioned they picked up Aguinaldo and dropped him off to create this insurrection. But there has to be some tensions just between the Americans in the city and the Filipinos gathering around. Very much so. Um, the And it starts even before the Americans uh, take the city. Um, the Americans had convinced uh, the uh, Filipino generals surrounding the uh, Manila to allow them to take over the southern line, the, the line south of Manila. Uh, and so they did so. And then there's this there's this weird sort of stalemate where it's the, the Spanish in the city and the Americans holding the southern line and the Filipinos holding the rest. Mm-hmm. And the Americans go behind the Filipinos' back and negotiate a secret surrender with the Spanish who will... The Americans will launch an attack, the Spanish will pretend to resist, and then they will surrender <laughs> to the Americans. Um, and the Americans, in return, promise to get them back to Spain but also to prevent the insur- the Filipino insurgents from getting into Manila. This sounds so much like what happened to Santiago de Cuba. Exactly, exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. And so this all goes off in August of 1898, and it works perfectly from the Spanish and American perspective, but the, the Filipinos are really stunned by this because it, it seems to them that suddenly the Spanish and the Americans are working together against them. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is the, the Americans settle into the city and prevent the Filipinos from coming in, sometimes at gunpoint. And the it, it turns into this weird, not-quite-siege, where the Filipino insur- uh, insurgents are surrounding the city, and the Americans are sitting in there. They're not quite at war, but they're not quite at peace either. Right. And then you add in, there's this one other little characteristic, which is the Filipino cultural system, uh, the way the Filipinos organized themselves, was what was called client-patron. That is, there were tribes, and then within each tribe, there were clients and patrons. Mm -hmm. Um, And so a rich man might have 100 to 150 workers who were his clients, and they would work for him, owe him loyalty, and he, in return, would owe them um, a job, a place to live, uh, and so on. It's almost a feudal relationship. Exactly right. It, yeah. And the basis of that feudal relationship was in many ways the perception of the importance of the, the patron. Mm-hmm. One of the ways that uh, army officers in the Filipino army established their importance was by facing down the enemy. And there are echoes with, with Indians counting coup in, in the American West. Right. Um, but so the Filipinos, officers would bring their men up to American units, and they would harangue the Americans. 
yell at them and then and then walk off. And this was they were sort of demonstrating, you know, how they were facing down the Americans to their patrons. Americans didn't know what the hell was going on. Forgive me. <laughs> they, um, you know, they, and so this, these sort of weird tensions began to uh, and confrontations began to grow between the Filipinos and the Americans over the course of the last part of 1898. Mm-hmm. So what triggers it then? You know, how, how's the war coming about? I mean, is it inevitable? Is it, is it bound to happen? It, it's an interesting question. I, I would say no, um, in the sense that it comes down in the end to a decision that McKinley makes. McKinley's waffling in the fall of 1898. He doesn't know what to do with the Philippines. Um, now, a lot of people are suggesting to him that the Philippines would be valuable as an entryway to China. Right, the whole manifest destiny going, you know, further westward argument. Exactly right, and and China, and even then, China was perceived as a great market for American businesses. So he's getting pressed to take the Philippines, or at least Manila Bay, as a way station to China. Um, uh, and so he thinks uh, for a moment, well, I'm not going to take the Philippines at all. And then, well, maybe I'll just take Manila Bay and then finally decide, no, if I just take Manila Bay, some other empire is going to take the rest of it. Right. And we're going to run into trouble there. So we'll, we'll take, we'll take all of, all of the Philippines. There's a, there's an interesting side story in this. A reverend, um, uh, tells the story, uh, at the time, um, that he had met with McKinley in October of, uh, 1898, and McKinley mm-hmm. had told him that he had been up all night praying to God uh, about what to do about the Philippines. And God finally spoke to him and told him to take all of the islands, that it was America's mission to civilize the Philippines. Um, and so this story comes out and slips into the historiography mm-hmm. for the next 50 years or so. Only, um, and I wasn't the one who noticed it, it was an earlier historian, but the reverend, who was quite elderly at the time, had told exactly the same story about Lincoln and the Gettysburg Address. Uh. <laughs> that he had met with Lincoln one night, and Lincoln had told him that God, he had prayed all night, and that God had spoken to him and given him the words to the Gettysburg Address. And it's almost word for word the same story. Um, so so suddenly you're sort of thinking, ah, this guy's this guy's making things up. Um but in any case, so McKinley, McKinley decides to take the Philippines. They, in the negotiations with Spain, they buy it from the Spanish for right. $20 million, um, which was real money at that time. Um, and when news of this breaks in January of 1899, the Filipinos, every worst suspicion of the Filipinos is confirmed. Um, and there is this, there are these couple of weeks of tension between the U.S. and the Filipinos, and mm-hmm. then overnight, February 4th and 5th, there is a confrontation between an American unit and a Filipino unit that ends up with shooting, um, and the next morning, the war essentially breaks out um, between the two sides. Well, you portrayed as though the, the commander in the field at the time, I think it was General Otis, had anticipated this and actually had made arrangements to position American forces for just such a contingency. Yeah, he did. I think I think he and his officers had a general sense that 
something was going to happen uh, and that they had best be prepared. And in a sense, I mean, one of the things to, to think about is that, that encounter overnight on February 4th and 5th, similar situations had happened before, mm-hmm. and the next day both sides had, had worked to stop um, anything from happening. Um, the morning of February 5th, um, uh, Otis, for one, was certainly uh, just essentially decided, this is it. I mean, this is, we're right. going to war. This is not, I'm not gonna, even going to try to, to tamp things down. And launched um, American forces um, into the assault. Um, mm-hmm. the, two, uh, the two elements to this, to add to this, are um, it was a Sunday, and most of the Filipino officers were away at church, um, that morning, mm. and so the, the units, the Filipino units, were leaderless. Right. And not to throw a sort of conspiracy theory element into it, but the ratification of the treaty, the peace treaty with Spain, was coming up in D.C. Uh, in the next couple of days, um, and it was a close-run thing. Um, mm-hmm. So if you were suspicious, um, you might think that uh, McKinley had arranged this to use the patriotic wave at the start of a war as a way of getting um, the treaty ratified. Right, right. You point out, you know, at least on paper you point out that the uh, Filipino Army of Liberation should have been a match for the Eighth Corps. You know, it's more experienced. They have parity in the form of the small arms. You know, they're equipped with German Mausers as compared to the American Krag Jorgensen rifles. They knew the land. I mean, it was it was their land and, right. and their cause. Right. And yet, within a, such a short time, the Americans have achieved an outright conventional victory right. over the Filipinos. Right. The it's an interesting it's a it's a fascinating issue because the assumption by historians has sort of been that this was this was kind of an ine- inevitable victory. But as you point mm-hmm. out, once you start breaking things down. It doesn't actually seem that inevitable in the sense that Filipinos had similar kind of weapons. They had much more experience. They knew the land much better. There are more of them, too. There are, there are oh, lots more of them. Yeah. They've built themselves extensive fortifications over the last six months, um, trench systems surrounding the city. They should have been able to hold out or at least give a better prospect, uh, of, uh, a better fight than they did. What I focus on is two related issues. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, One is that as part of that client-patron system, the client owed certain duties to his patron, but among those was not dying. That's understandable. (laughs) (laughs) And so the the client was quite willing to become part of an army unit, was quite willing to fight, but if the prospect of being killed in the service of his patron presented itself, he quite rightly would say, uh, this is not part of my job, this is not part of my responsibility, I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. And so what would happen when the Americans attacked is the Filipinos would fire quite eagerly and happily until the Americans started closing in on the fortifications. And then they would right. bug out. Um, now, the Americans sort of saw this as cowardice and stuff like that, and we might sort of perceive it that way now, but in a sense it's quite a reasonable decision based on mm-hmm. what their loyalties and, requ- and the requirements of their loyalties were. Well, within their culture, they're fulfilling their mandate. Exactly you right. Know, we're making our show, and now we can leave. Exactly right. And now, you, and the second factor you add into this is 
though the Filipinos had um, similar small arms to the Americans, or a lot of them did, they didn't have nearly the ammunition supply that the United States did, largely because the U.S. was cutting off um, uh, supplies to the insurgents. And so the soldiers didn't have uh, have much of a chance to practice their shooting. Now, as you and I know, when you pull the trigger of a, of a heavy rifle, especially the, with the caliber of bullet they were using at that time, the recoil is very severe. Yeah. If you're not trained in it, what will happen is that the, the rifle will rise up. Mm-hmm. The barrel will push up, um, and um, uh, the bullet will end up going high in the air rather than where you right. it. Um, and it takes a lot of practice and a lot of discipline to keep that um, uh, barrel down. Uh, British soldiers in the Revolutionary War, for example, were trained to aim at the knees of their of the people they were firing at to right. account for that. Um, Filipinos didn't have a chance to do that. <coughs> and so the Americans very quickly discovered that the Philippine rifle fire, although it was intense, was also enormously inaccurate. Mm-hmm. And in fact... The funny thing was, it was inaccurate, more inaccurate the closer you got. Um, time, you know, time to get out of here. The, the, the hysterical thing was, the American officers quickly learned uh, uh, two things. One, that a frontal assault, when you encountered a Filipino unit, the best tactic was a frontal assault. You got to get in amongst them as quickly as possible. Um, they'll miss with their bullets, and then they'll run away when you get close. But you don't want to get into a slugging match with them from a distance because, you know, they'll eventually start hitting you with something. The other mm-hmm. thing they learned, which they used in, in a very subtle way, was that it was perfectly safe for them to stand up under fire. And so American officers would have their men sort of lie down and get under cover, and then they would walk around cheering them up, encouraging them, and things like that. And there are these mm-hmm. great stories about the men who are sort of terrified that their officers are going to get shot and impressed with what they think is this suicidal bravery of this guy standing up and walking around under fire. And the officers know know perfectly well that they're not going to get hit. Um, But it looks good. You know, you're looking at the Army at a point that raises a whole new set of questions. The turn of the century is a real interesting time for the American Army. We're seeing the tide of professionalism finally beginning to affect change in the institution and how it's, it's operates and its tactics and doctrine. Uh, advocates of the standing army are beginning to win out over the proponents of the citizen militia. And yet the Philippine-American War is far largely with volunteers and state militia. It's, it's a fascinating juncture for the... Uh, it's, a, it's an amazing juncture for the American Army because they really are... In a transition from a much one kind of force to a much different kind of mm-hmm. of force, and this comes out clearly in a in a couple of ways. the um, The army that goes to war in the Philippines is at first very heavily dominated by volunteers and people who had joined up uh, as part of the Spanish American War. Uh, when that war mm-hmm. started, there was a wave of uh, volunteering by American men, um, and two hundred thousand or something like that. And for the first time, Congress was willing to. For the first time in thirty years, Congress was willing to uh, expand the army. Um, 
there's a there's a great story of a of an army unit going westward by train to go out to the Philippines, and they stop at every small town along the way to get water and excuse me for the engine and coal and food, and they end up arriving in San Francisco with more men than they left. <laughs> <laughs> because young men along the way would jump on the train and just decide to join the unit. Uh, and the, the soldiers, in, without going through basic training, without officially enlisting, and the soldiers in the unit just sort of welcomed them in. Um, and it's this, it's this volunteer army that fights the first phase of the Philippine War, mm-hmm. this conventional battle against um, the insurgents. But there's another army that's still present, and that's the long service army, mm-hmm. very small in numbers, but very experienced, who had spent the last 30 years fighting the Native Americans out in the American West. And towards the end of 1899, as Aguinaldo realizes that he is losing the conventional war and decides to go turn to guerrilla warfare, mm-hmm. it's this army that begins to come to the forefront because the volunteers start going home. The conventional right. war is over. We've won. Um, Shades of Iraq, 2003. And now, uh, but, uh, and now, now my enlistment is up. Uh-huh. But when it becomes clear that there, no, the war is not quite over, it's the professional soldiers, the guys who had been serving for 30 or 40 years, who had been to hundreds of small forts in the American, served in hundreds of small forts in the American West, who begin to pick up the leadership reins and look around and go, this is familiar. This, mm-hmm. is, this is the kind of war we've been fighting for the last 30 years. This isn't San Juan Hill or Battle of Manila or Santiago. This is the kind of small unit war that we've learned to do over the last couple of decades. It was still small-scale fighting. Exactly right. Exactly right. right. I mean, you know, you think about it. Arthur MacArthur, who becomes the commander um, during this period, had had um, risen to the rank of captain during the American Civil War. And then he spent the next 30 years at that rank because the Army was tiny and there were no um, chances for promotion shuttling from around a range of army forts in the West, mm-hmm. fighting every kind of imaginable small-scale guerrilla war that you can think of. Well, not only fighting, some of these units were diplomats, too. Exactly. It's a very good point. I mean, not only were they fighting, but, but what we sort of disparagingly refer to as nation-building mm-hmm. uh, was going on. They were the, sometimes the only law in the area. They were the only even somewhat neutral arbiter between the Indians and the settlers. Um, they were often the only ones who could bring in the mail and everything like that. And so they had this very long experience not only with fighting, but in a sense with building a society around them. Um, and suddenly they find themselves in the same situation again. The, the climate's a lot different. Um, the, the people are a lot different, um, but it boy, it looks really familiar. At what point does racial intolerance become a factor? I'm sorry. No, no, I'm I'm sorry. Uh, at what point does racial intolerance become a feature in the Philippine War? It's well, there's there's always a tension there because um, the Americans bring over with them um, not only the sort of all the military 
um, skills and equipment. They also bring with them all of the sort of domestic and cultural ideas uh, mm-hmm. about uh, the world. And so very quickly, the Filipinos, they begin to perceive the Filipinos in much the same way that they perceive um, racial minorities in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a, there's a fascinating sort of tension between treating the Filipinos as Indians which leads to one set of treatment and treating them as African Americans. Now you add into this that a lot of the American army officers are from the South with all the Jim Crow attitudes that were so prevalent in the American South then. Mm -hmm. And you get into this very sort of odd, um, Baroque kind of um, racial uh, structure um, in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. To, to give you a sense of what I mean, the um, uh, a lot of the American soldiers and officers began referring to Filipinos in, in Manila using the N-word, mm-hmm. um, calling you know calling them niggers. And the the one set of the people who protested were Southern officers. And the logic they went they explained was you don't socialize with niggers back home, and yet we're going to the balls and the parties thrown by the local Filipino elites. They're obligated to be at these functions. Exactly right. We can't can't call them that because otherwise we can't go to their parties, and we like going to their parties. Um, And so you can sort of see that sort of just paradoxical strangeness of how... um, uh, the racial attitudes come over, but at the same time, there's a there's a really genuine sense that we are here, that the United States is there to civilize the Filipinos. For all the paternalism that that implies, they the the army really did believe that they were there to lift up the Filipinos. Well, this is what social control entails. Exactly, and mm-hmm. some of that comes from. This is the way we will win the counterinsurgency. Mm-hmm. But there's also, I think, I would argue, a genuine element of Christianity, of a sense of it's our Christian duty to lift these people up. Well, I would think you can compare that to what's happening in American domestic politics. I mean, you know, comparing the Philippines with what's taking shape in the progressive movement. It's a, it's a very good point. There is that sort of missionary and progressive sense of um, part of someone's duty in life is to, and part of the state's duty in life is to uplift um, people who have not. Now, mm-hmm. I mean, you, you throw in the, uh, a sort of social Darwinist underpinning to this of, you know, if, if, if what's important is what race you are part of, then you need to do everything you can to improve the race. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we forget that a lot of the progressive social programs that we hold um, uh, that started this time were actually started by, uh, at least in in Europe, were started in Germany by Otto von Bismarck, who was using them not only to co-opt his political opponents, but also to raise the German race, raise the Teutonic race. But, But so in the Philippines, there is that sort of mishmash of progressivism and Christianity and social control and so on. Um, and just to give an example of the way this played out, um, one of the things the Americans did was to start to teach all Filipino children English. 
and it's useful because it allows the Americans to communicate them, communicate with them. It's useful because it brings a single language to the Philippines that all Filipinos will share. Um, it's useful because it allows the Americans to then hire Filipinos to help run the American occupation um, in the Philippines. Um, and so you can sort of see the way in which it's useful for Filipinos, but also for the United States. Well, one reason I bring up this issue of racial intolerance in the Philippines is you know, how much it's become part of the historiography of the moment. I mean, I'm thinking of people like Stuart Creighton Miller's Benevolent Assimilation, where um, he spends a lot of time focusing on the issues of the water cure and arguing that racism was a important feature in the campaign in the administration of the islands. Now, if I read you correctly, you don't agree with this. Yeah, you know, it's there's a there's a weird um, sort of tendency in the historiography to um, to not see the Philippines for the way it actually was, and uh, and that comes out most clearly in the 70s and 80s when the Philippines come to be in many ways a stand-in for Vietnam. Um, there is this sense of, oh, look, here's another land war in Southeast Asia that we shouldn't have gotten involved in. Um, and I and I think that what that what has happened with that is that the brutality of the Americans has been drastically exaggerated, with with one exception, uh, which I'll come to in a minute, mm-hmm. and the futility of the American effort there, or the, the the complexity of the American effort there, has come to be drastically underrepresented. Um, I'm not saying that there was no brutality in the American forces. There certainly was. It was used, brutality was used regularly. Um, torture was used uh, in interrogations um, on a regular basis. Um, but with the exception of a really catastrophic period in Samar, um, which we can talk about if you want, um, uh, the Americans didn't use um, the kind of organized uh, torture or genocidal slaughter that I think Miller at least tries to suggest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the best evidence for this is how quickly the Filipinos and the Americans reconciled after the war was over. Right. Um, you know, you think about how quickly Filipinos were enlisting in the United States Navy, how quickly Filipinos were being a... Um, uh, an integral part of American society, and even when the Japanese invade in '41, how hard the Filipinos fought to get the Americans to come back. Uh, I don't think you see that kind of reconciliation if, as Miller argues, the Americans slaughtered three million Filipinos. The exception to this, yeah, the exception to this, of course, is Samar, which is which goes very badly wrong. Um, the, and the backstory there is that the war was sort of winding down in 1901, late 1901, when a Filipino insurgent unit in um, a place called, um, uh, oh, I'm blanking on the name, um, uh, Balangiga, manages to ambush a company of U.S. soldiers um, in their residence in a local church and essentially wiped them out. Um, it's the worst single... Uh, day of losses in the, for American forces 
um, with the exception of, of the Battle of Manila itself. And there's this sort of sense on the part of the Americans of, don't you understand that the war is over? Mm-hmm. Why are you, you know, don't you understand that you're, you, you've lost? Why are you still fighting? And even the name of what happens it reflects this. It's not the Battle of Balangiga, it's the Balangiga Massacre. Mm-hmm. Even though it was a perfectly reasonable attack by the, the Filipinos. And what happens is the American uh, commander, um, uh, Adna Chafee, um, sends a general down to Samar by the name of Jacob Hurd Smith. And he, who is sort of um, Chafee knows well, is not the nicest of guys. Mm-hmm. And Hurd Smith calls his officers in and tells them that they are to reduce Samar to a howling wilderness and that every Filipino male age 10 and up is to be treated as an enemy combatant um, and killed out of hand. Um, now, the officers obey more or less that order, um, and um, there's not a full-scale um, sort of slaughter on the island, but it gets very bad um, for a couple of months uh, until Chafee finally intervenes and shuts things down. Um, and that's that's a very um, it's an enormous blot on American and the American Army's history, mm-hmm. um, uh, and certainly by any measurable standard, a war crime. Um, but it's not general policy in the, right. in the U.S. Army during the war. Okay, how do Filipinos today consider the Philippines American War? And how should we remember? The Filipinos have an interesting take on the war. Um, one of the things that happens during the war is it's a it's a unifying experience for Filipinos. Now, during the war, they may not have um, fought as a single unified nation, but it was a war that they all experienced. And so coming out of the war, it, in a weird sense, becomes that founding experience of the Filipino nation. This is the moment we all fought together. Mm-hmm. Um, now, they sort of allied over the tribal loyalties at this point, but it, but it very much becomes, in a sense, the American Revolution, uh, what the American Revolution was for us. It's the moment of shared battle, um, albeit one we lost. Um, and even today, it is seen as this, the, the sort of central and founding myth of, um, of the Filipino nation. At the same time, it's allied with this odd friendliness to the Americans. I mean, the Filipinos still perceive themselves as owing a debt to the Americans for that civilizing effort. Um, And you think about the irony of the fact that during World War II, the savior of the Philippines, the guy who returns, as he promised, Mm -hmm. Douglas MacArthur, is the son of Arthur MacArthur, the mm-hmm. commander, American commander in the Philippines, who essentially defeated Aguinaldo. You know, they're welcoming back the, the son of the man who conquered them. Um, and so it's, it's the war is sort of this interesting and very complex sort of memory. It's their national war of unity, but fighting against someone who they are now, they are still very good friends with. Um, on our side, it's, it's sort of gotten lost. I mean, I, I don't mm-hmm. know that that 
the, the sort of story of American military history really includes it all that much, even, you know, despite my book. You know, you think about what American Americans talking about their war would be. There would be the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, World War II, Vietnam, mm-hmm. and then Iraq. And there are a lot of wars that get left out of that, the sort of forgotten wars, the War mm-hmm. of 1812, Spanish-American, Philippine, uh, World War One, even, yeah, Korea. Yeah. It's not one of the wars that America remembers, um, even though I would argue in many ways it's one of the most important wars in modern American history. Well, that raises another question. Should we look at it or, or teach it as a moment or as the antecedent for where we are now? Um, I, you know, it, it's, that's a very good question, and my my suggestion would be would be as both that you need to teach it as both that it is, it is in a sense the last moment of a kind of American society and American army that disappears very quickly after the war ends. Um, you know, the American army that fights in the Philippines disappears almost immediately after the war is over when it gets reformed by Teddy Roosevelt, of all people, into a modern industrial war-fighting force. Um, And it's really, it is is sort of a pivotal moment for American society in the sense of this was the war in which the United States made, whether it recognized it or not, made a commitment to the globe. And really the 20th century, I would argue, was the at least one of the most critical stories of the 20th century was the United States grappling with that commitment. Right. That we have, we've gone out into the world and we're not quite sure what that means. So we join in with World War I, but not until much later on. And then we draw back in the 20s. And then we commit ourselves in World War II. And then we, you know, remain committed during the Cold War. When we pull back in the 90s and now we're in another phase of, of commitment. I think that sort of that sort of ambiguous sense of, well, we're part of the world. <clears throat> what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, really um, starts with the Philippines. <clears throat> I mean, you can see it even in the debate <clears throat> over what's going on in uh, Libya right now, mm-hmm. which is this discussion of, well, if there are no vital interests of the United States involved, why are we there? allied uh, against a sort of sense of it's our responsibility to do something mm-hmm. about things like this. We're almost out of time. So one last, well, two last questions. First, where do you go from here? And second, can you say a few words about your next project? Um, where do I go from here? My great interest recently has been, and, and the Philippine book is, is at least part of an expression of this, is... Um, the interrelationship between war and culture. Um, mm-hmm. In the sense, I think that my argument would be that societies get the kind of wars that they, or at least societies try to fight the kind of wars they find congenial. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, World War II is the good war for the United States in a, in because we like a very clear-cut, non-ambiguous, good and bad, good and evil, Mm-hmm. Um, kind of moral conflict 
it's a ma- it was a massively industrial war um, which fits in with American society. High technology was key to the victory, mm-hmm. um, and you know it it and so that's that's the kind of the kind of war American culture finds congenial. Um, we get we don't find congenial the kind of ambiguous wars, the wars mm-hmm. where do you shoot or do you try and recruit? Um, you know, do you do you fight or do you try to win the bad guy over to your side? Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm very interested in that that re- the relationship um, between the two things and sort of teasing out how that works out in practice. Um, my current project, which um, is actually in the manuscript stage, is a book on something that happened at the same time as the Philippines. Um, in the summer mm-hmm. of 1900, um, there was a grand peasant uprising in China, led by a group called the uh, the Fists of Harmonious Fury, mm-hmm. the Boxers, as they were called. Yes. The West. Um, and an eight-nation um, Western force intervened to shut them down. Um, and I wrote a book looking not only at the Boxers, but looking at how these imperial nations dealt with each other during this. That's great. I mean, that's a subject that's long overdue for a fresh look, if I remember back to my grad school days. David Silby, it was great talking to you. I wish you well, and I look forward to another chat in the future, and hopefully in the near future. Excellent. Excellent. Goodbye, David. Thanks very much. I appreciate the time and the great questions. You've been listening to an interview with David Silby about his book, A War of Frontier and Empire, The Philippine-American War, 1899, to 1902. This is your host, Bob Wintermute, signing off for new books in military history. Thank you for listening.